So then she's screaming out, you know, hey, my window blew out and I'm bleeding. And then we're right after that, I hear a ping, like somebody walked up and smacked a sledgehammer on the side of the plane. And then right after that, uh, my co-pilot and I see orange tracer rounds going up right in front of the nose. And then everything kind of comes smashing together all at once. And we realize, holy cow, we're getting shot at. Want to make a podcast? Let me tell you about Spotify's program for podcasters. And it's called Spotify for Podcasters. I've been using it for over a year now. Couldn't be happier from the switch. You can record wherever you create podcasts, whether it be your phone, computer, and it's easy to upload it and distribute it to everywhere podcasts are heard. With Spotify for Podcasters, you can earn money in a variety of ways, including ads and podcast subscriptions. Best of all, Spotify for Podcasters is completely free. So launch your podcast today. Get started with Spotify for Podcasters. Go to www.spotify.com backslash podcasters to get started. Monarch Legacy of Monsters, an Apple original series. The world is on fire. I decided to do something about it. On November 17th. This place, it's not ours. Believe me. The most massive event of the year arrives. If you come with me, you'll know everything, I promise. Oh my God, go, go, go! Monarch Legacy of Monsters, streaming November 17th, only on Apple TV+. Plus. Seat tied. Altera zero eyes. We're clear for takeoff. Clear for the airspace. Fire protector. I was going to fire protector. Oh, my fire ramp curve was at 354. Just like that, Chris, man, thanks for joining me on the podcast. Hey. Thanks for having me, Ryan. Yeah, absolutely. This is the joke. I mean, it's always it's always a challenge to coordinate schedules with people flying around the world, etc. But this one takes the cake. So it's a long time coming. We first met flying MC-12s way back when. Uh, True. And look at you now, flying the mighty yep. Herc. You're a C-130J pilot, but I want you to jump in, just kind of give me the 60 to 90 second elevator pitch of who you are, a little bit of your background, and then we're going we're gonna to jump into some of your career here. Sounds good. Uh, Chris Richardson, go by Chewy, born and uh, raised in western South Dakota, Mount Rushmore area. People have been out playing tourists. Um, went to did ROTC at South Dakota State. Uh, got married after that and drug my new wife to Vance for pilot training. Nice. Uh, and then got a uh, yeah Enid America. <laughs> um, then got a uh, combo drop out of pilot training because that's what they were doing at that time because they needed so many people to man the MC-12 gig. So I got an MC-12 with a C-130 follow-on to Little Rock. So PCS to Little Rock and then went and did the MC-12 deployment, which is where you and I crossed paths. Came back, went to the C-130 FTU, uh, spent about three and a half years at Little Rock uh, flying the Herc. Then went to Laughlin to do a, what we call white jet tour as a T1 IP. And then about 2019 or so, came back to Little Rock, got recalled in the Herc. Uh, did another like three year stint on the AMC side. And then last month, I just walked over to the FTU. So now I'm or, uh, helping with the schoolhouse. Yeah, that's got to be a good gig, teaching people how to fly the Mighty Herc, I would imagine. But. Yeah, it's a lot, of, a lot around the flagpole, but it's, yeah. it's good teaching. Here's a question. This is random, and then we're going to jump into I want to talk about the Distinguished Flying Cross you received. 
but a quick question for the C-130. Do you do heavyweight assault landings? Do you train, like, actually in the plane at Little Rock, or is that sim only? No, we do it in the plane. It's a, a quarterly or normal bean requirement uh, every year. So I file that away in, like, things we don't tell the taxpayers, but to get our heavyweight assaults on, like, a training line, we'll put on... Uh, we call them pet rocks, but they're literally giant concrete blocks that we put on a pallet and we'll load up two or three of those and then take on some extra fuel so we can get to the weight requirement to log a heavyweight assault. And then we'll fly around and get whatever practice we need. All right. And tell me what, what's the criteria for a heavyweight assault landing? What does it look like as far as weight and then runway length? Uh, runway length really isn't too much of a factor it's just based on whatever the conditions but we usually need to be above like 130 135,000 pounds to count it as a heavyweight assault okay and then anything under that is just normal so on a training line where we don't have cargo we got to make cargo so like i said we'll we'll load up some pet rocks and go fly around what's the shortest runway you can land on like if if you're landing at 130k what are you what are you looking at I mean, depending on the conditions, if it's lower altitude, we can still, uh, for training-wise, 3,000 feet are men. But uh, in, like, a deployed environment, it's whatever the toll will allow. So right. if the box says you can do it, you can do it. So Yeah, man, that's 3,000 feet short. And I know you're talking about the conditions, right? Density, altitude, temperature, all those things come into factor. Wet runway, like, um, runway condition, if it's probably mud, et cetera. So that's wild. 3,000 feet for a big old plane is impressive. Dude, I want to jump into the Distinguished Flying Cross story, really dig into that. And then when we're done, we'll talk maybe a little bit more about your career and we can shed some light on kind of how you got to this point. But I have it pulled up here, and I'll post this as well, but um, – the single flying cross, that's a big deal. On September 19th, 2020, you're executing a mission out in Afghanistan. You're ingressing into an airfield. You guys get shot at, take effective fire, hits one of your crew members. You attempt to come back around and land. doesn't work out, and you end up going back and getting another plane. That's like the high-level um, summary. Am I right? Yep. Can you, can you jump into the, the 19th? What was that mission? What were you doing? What was it? What was it? Frag for? Yeah. So the frag of the mission was to take us um, theater response force into Kunduz. So we're gonna we are one of two fixed wing assets to bring a bunch of people in there real fast. The army is gonna do an op, and then we're gonna exfil everybody and leave, take them out of there. Um, was kind of the general game plan of that. Um, so to kind of set the stage, this is. Uh, fall of 2020, so about 11 months before our exit from Afghanistan, which at the time, if you had told me, hey, 11 months from now, we're not going to be in this country anymore, I would have said, hey, you're crazy. Like, <laughs> what are you talking about? Yeah. I've been here for 20 years, practically <laughs> having an apartment here. Right. Some great real estate. Yep. So anyway, um, for listeners, like they've always been a C-130 presence the entire time we were in Afghanistan, there's either one squadron at Bagram or some, sometimes there's a second squadron at uh, Kandahar. But, and then for the last you know, few years we were there, it was just a constant uh, rotation of the four C-130 AMC squadrons in and out of Bagram to provide that 
organic airlift support in country and then kind of connect it to the rest of the Persian Gulf. So with the majority of the sorties is inner theater airlift or inner country airlift. So predominantly flying yeah, from like Bagram to different Ford operating bases. Yeah, Bagram is definitely the hub of kind of the standard hub and spoke systems. Probably half the lines would bounce around Afghanistan to do whatever was needed. And then probably the other half would go into Kuwait or Al-Udeed, bring people in and out of country that needed to. So, um, like I said, we were on our standard four-month rotation. Um, so we went out there in May, and we are coming home the end of September. So that's kind of the, the quirk of this story is this, is this mission was actually the last mission on the last day we were responsible for the ATO. And then our sister squadron was taken over and then kind of everything falls apart. Yeah, ne never let your guard down, right? No, no, never, never rest. <laughs> um, so anyway, like I said, was so we originally weren't even supposed to be flying the, uh, so like I said, there's a height of COVID um, so everybody coming into the CENTCOM AOR needs to, at that time, had to go to LUD, quarantine for two weeks, and then go after that to your deployment location. So we actually left home station early, did our two weeks in the deed, and then uh, went to Bagram, set up shop, and swapped out the uh, Dias squadron that was there. So then our sister squadron from Little Rock's coming to relieve us in September. I don't know what the exact story ended up being, but basically there was a little disagreement on when their clock started in the deed for their 14 days. So basically they got uh, more or less delayed a day and a half or two days uh, coming in to replace us. We're like, ah, we'll just take the ATO for those two more days. Uh, my crew got picked to uh, do this mission. So we were kind of excited, do something different right before we leave, something a little non-standard. Um, and then, so this was like a Saturday night mission. Sunday, the whole squadron was going to out process. Monday morning, we're taking our jets and going home. What, were you guys having to do a lot of the COVID protocols and all that uh, separating and wearing masks when you're deployed? It, was, it wasn't too bad, like on base, just operating as a squadron. Obviously, the chow hall was closed, so you're just grabbing food and going. Really? That kind of thing. Uh, but we did spend quite a few missions with our air medical evacuation counterparts that are always deployed with C-130 unit, like moving COVID patients around Afghanistan. Okay. Kind of centralizing them at Bagram. So on this day, 19 September, you guys are bringing in a bunch of army dudes into a forward operating base. Is the plan for you guys to stay there while they conduct their operation or are you taking back off? And going back. No, to we're taking back on. So we're doing an infill, exfill. So we got men and people and equipment that are kind of playing a big part in the mission since there was only two fixed wing assets going in there. So the plan was go in there, drop everybody off, come back to Bagram, wait for the op to be over, and then fly back up to Condes, do the exfill, um, and then bring everybody back to Bagram. What is that timeline supposed to look like? Uh, it was, I mean, it's only 100 miles to Condu, so it's a pretty short flight up there to an engine running offload, kick everybody off basically as fast as possible so they can do their thing uh, and then sit back at Bragham for three, four, five hours, whatever they needed to finish the op and then uh, go back and pick them up. Okay. 
And then where you're going into condos, what, what type of environment? Is that FOB relatively established, or where, where are you guys going into? I mean, it's an established FOB, but it's a little bit on the smaller side as far as the other FOBs in Afghanistan. It's got a decent runway, but uh, kind of borders the town and then a bunch of open area, and there's a little bit of terrain uh, to deal with there. But um, definitely not a huge presence, so that's why we're bringing in so many people and equipment for the op um, so they could set up whatever they needed to, their security. Did you guys have any fires that were going to be above you, supporting you, like the ingress, where I assume there had to be some Apaches at least at a minimum that would provide cover? Yeah, there was a whole stack that was built up for the op, kind of back to the MC-12 okay. days, kind of ISR assets of a whole bunch of different types, you know, gunships, the whole whole thing going into this i mean i would have to imagine month four you've probably done this a whole bunch obviously you had a lot of time in afghanistan the mc12 comfort level has got to be pretty high i imagine was there any kind of complacency you think or i mean complacency is probably not the right term but it's just putting your pants on to go to work almost or is it different for you yeah i mean i mean we had been into condos probably a dozen times just on this deployment alone so it was like hey we're we're going to the same field we've done to do normal cargo runs both day and night we're just tweaking the mission a little bit and doing something different this time with you know different requirements for the customer interesting and how many guys were you dropping off roughly uh we had like a few dozen and then a couple vehicles and some other equipment. Okay. Interesting. All right. So walk me through as you guys are, uh, walk me through from when you airborne and going into there when things start going awry. Yeah. So we do our rehearsals Friday night. Everything goes well. Saturday, take off on time. Everything's going great. Um, like I said, short hop up there. We get up to the Condus area, check in with the JTAC, confirm our airspace assignment. Uh, we get some TCAS traffic that pops up from one of the ISR assets. So we kind of adjust our descent a little bit uh, in our approach. And then kind of, we call it a pen penetration descent, but then we start kind of a max effort, high speed descent to get us down to the approach as quickly as possible and kind of minimize our time in the wes what does that look like i mean it's basically like hey rip it to idle point the nose at the ground like make sure you know all the math works out beforehand <laughs> says we're going to make it but kind of just get going so then i probably shouldn't have done it it was my fault but uh, in the back of my mind i'm like oh hey everything's going pretty well and then that's when everything just kind of fell apart after that so uh in the c-130 we fly, well, for deployment, standard setup is aircraft commander, co-pilot, and then two loadmasters as our four-person min, min crew uh, deployed. And then we'll, um, home station, we fly with whoever ends up on the schedule. Deployed, we'll do hard crews uh, for scheduling efficiency. So on a four-month deployment, you'll have one crew for two months and then half time swap it up do another hard crew for another two months so this crew uh, we've been flying every other day for two months so you get to know everybody's mannerisms how they sound on the intercom you know you can kind of predict what people are going to say that kind of thing and then we'll kind of balance out the for 
risk management purchases will balance out the experience level on the cruise. So you'll put the brand new co-pilot with the instructor, you'll put the high time co-pilot with the brand new aircraft commander, and then we'll do the same on the loadmaster side. So Staff Sergeant Jade Morin was my experienced uh, instructor loadmaster, and then uh, Airman Carden was my, we call him a baby load just for short term, but my <laughs> inexperienced loadmaster on his first uh, deployment. Um, so anyway, we're kind of at the bottom of our Pen D. We're in a left bank. We're just getting ready to level off to start our approach. And then Sergeant Morin just yells over the intercom, my window blew out. So I'm like, well, that doesn't make any sense. We're like completely depressurized. And then she says, hey, my window blew out. I'm bleeding everywhere. Gee. I'm like, this is escalating quickly, to say the least. Are you, do you, are you normally depressurized? Like, what, what altitude did you, did you start this? I'm, I'm assuming high teens, low 20s, you're cruising over there? Yeah, we're, we were up in the 20s. Uh, and then we're getting down to probably like less than 2,000 feet. And then the are, you, are you pressurized up in the high teens, low 20s, or is that something that tactically you depressurize? No, we'll, we'll stay pressurized up there, but we'll depressurize early before we get into the WES. Um, there's most people have probably seen in C-130, even if they're not, didn't recognize what they're looking at, but the, uh, towards the back of the aircraft in front of the ramp, we call them the paratroop doors. There's two doors that slide up and that's the primary exit if we're dropping paratroopers uh, via static line. We can drop a stick out of each side of the aircraft at the same time. So that door has about a two by two window in the middle of it. And the loadmasters have a really fancy crash worthy air crew member seat that kind of folds in front of that window. And they will scan out that window during approach and departure uh, looking for threats. So that's where Sergeant Morin was sitting on the left side of the aircraft um, as we were making that turn. And uh, so then she's screaming out, you know, hey, my window blew out and I'm bleeding. And then we're right after that, I hear a ping, like somebody walked up and smacked a sledgehammer on the side of the plane. And then right after that, uh, my co-pilot and I see orange tracer rounds going up right in front of the nose. And then everything kind of comes smashing together all at once and we realize, holy cow, we're getting shot at. Uh, it was probably a little temporal distortion to me. It yeah. felt like it took quite a while, but this whole thing probably was a matter of seconds. Um, so then when we kind of figure out what's going on, uh, evasively maneuver, kind of where our standard procedures away from the threat, get up uh, out of the WES, and then I kind of turn south and point us back towards Bagram. Since our whole world just got blown up, I'm like, we need to start putting the pieces back together. Um, so I'm like, hey, we just got engaged, plane got hit. I know there's an issue with a crew member. Uh, I'm just gonna point us towards home and then we'll start figuring it out. Um, so checked in with the JTAC, hey, tell them, hey, we're, we're peeling off for right now. Um, call back to the back of the plane to uh, my young loadmaster. I'm like, hey, what's going on back there? Because at this point, Jade's not on intercom anymore. And he's just glued uh, to his window, like scanning for threats. He's like, no, we're clear outside. I'm like, hey, man, 
yeah, we're good. Turn around. What's happening behind you? Because they sit across from each other. He's like, oh, they're working on Jade. So he had uh, two combat controllers in the back of the plane. They were the ones sitting closest uh, to Sergeant Morin. So they were Johnny on the spot. They reached up and yanked her out of her seat, got her behind the armor, started uh, giving her first aid. So I'm like, all right, cool. Uh, Carden, I need you to check in. Check the rest of the army dudes, make sure nobody else is injured, and then uh, do a battle damage assessment in the back of the plane. Like, look around, do you see anything wrong? Um, and then get back to me. Were you guys the first ones? I assume you guys are probably your two ship, both flying the same rough flight path, the penetration in there. Monarch, Legacy of Monsters, an Apple original series. The world is on fire. I decided to do something about it. On November 17th. This place, it's not ours. Believe me. The most massive event of the year arrives. If you come with me, you'll know everything, I promise. Oh my God, go, go, go! Monarch, Legacy of Monsters, streaming November 17th, only on Apple TV+. Level up your listening with Bose Quiet Comfort Ultra Earbuds and Headphones with immersive sound and world-class noise cancellation for a not-so-silent night. Visit Bose.com slash Spotify to shop sound that's more than a present. Yeah, we were just a single ship. Okay. We were going in first, and then uh, MC was coming in later to basically like set up a farp for all the helos. Paint a picture for the terrain. Is it high terrain, or where do you think you took fire from? Uh, to me, like night, I assume, again, you're blacked out. So the fact that these guys hit with effective fire like right off the get-go, they, they had to be having some Yeah, so that was, that was kind of the planning element, is this was like right at dusk. So we're in like kind of the worst time to be flying, but that's what we needed to do to meet the Army's requirements okay. for their timeline of the op. So we're right between the, hey, I can't see great, and NVGs aren't effective yet because it's not dark enough. Yeah, terrible time. Yeah, if it was 20 minutes, 25 minutes to the right, we would have been completely blacked out. Probably wouldn't, uh, probably wouldn't be talking to you. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, but anyway, let's see where we live. Yeah, so, so you peel out of the fight just basically to, all right, hey, we got shot at, we're shot up. Like, let's reassess. You turn south. Yeah, so we're, we're heading back to Bagram. My young loadmaster's kind of doing his BDA check in the back of the plane. Um, we're putting all the pieces back together. Thankfully, so one of the ground force commanders, troop commanders in the back of the plane had asked beforehand, hey, is there a way I can um, listen to and transmit on the command and control C2 SATCOM frequency. We're like, yeah, we can figure that out. So the loadmasters uh, have these really long comm cables uh, that they use. They can walk around the back of the airplane, uh, go outside like during engine start or something like that. So we grab an extra one from another plane beforehand. We rig it up uh, on the flight deck with one of the extra comm panels and then run that cord all the way back so he can plug in and listen to the C2 frequency. So he's sitting in one of the vehicles like right in front of all this. So he literally has a front row seat. So he starts talking on 
the SACCOM Freak, which I'm listening to in the cockpit, so I actually get a pretty good, like, SA update. Um, so he's like, hey, we took, telling C2, hey, we took fire. One of the loadmasters is injured. She's got a head laceration. So what had happened, the plane ended up only taking three rounds. One round went clean through the tail. Not a big deal. There's nothing to hit. The second round hit Sergeant Morin's window basically right in front of her face. Thankfully, the outer pane stopped the round, but the overpressure basically caused the inner pane to explode. Okay. And then she took all that plexiglass shrapnel uh, to the forehead above her right eye and then punched about a two to three inch hole in that window with a bunch of cracking. And then we took the third round, uh, was behind the paratrooper door up closer to the cockpit. Um, so he's like, hey, she has a, so he's updating C2. Hey, she's got a head laceration. And so now we're like, okay. And then at that time, uh, my young load master checks back in. He's like, hey, all the other army guys are fine. I don't see anything wrong with the plane. So we're kind of putting all these pieces back together. And then I'm like, all right, well, the plane's fine. Jade's got a survivable wound. This isn't like a life limber eyesight type of thing. Everybody else is fine. We're basically still like mission effective. And then I'm kind of like, they're going to ask us to go back. I'm like, I don't really have a reason to say no. Like, I can't really get to no yeah. right now after putting all the pieces back together. And then sure enough, right after that, over C2, they're like, hey, are they reattempting the approach? Like, they got to figure out, are they going to go to contingency planning or um, whatever? So then, after, so then I'm like, yeah, um, yeah, tell them we're coming back. We'll, we'll give it another try. Um, so I talked with my co-pilot, Christian, I was like, hey, this is how we're going to change up the approach. Obviously, we're going to stay away from where we got, just got shot at. Um, and then told my loadmaster, hey, tell the, the troop commander, like, hey, this is their five-minute warning, and we're making a right turn and heading back in. Um, so we did that, started another pendy down to a shorter approach. Same type of thing, everything was going good. Talking up my loadmaster on the way in, like, hey man, this was supposed to happen with two of you, Jade's out of the picture, it's all on you, so time to time to step up, kind of slow as, so yep, be a champion, slow as smooth, smooth as fast type of thing, you know, and then I got all the confidence that you can get it done. Um, we got on the approach, start slowing down to configure the airplane, uh, call for flaps 50, which is like our half kind of flat position, Slow down a little bit more, put the gear down. And then at that point, I can tell just something doesn't feel right with the plane. And then I look down at the flap indicator and it's reading zero. And then at this point, I'm pissed because th I'm thinking my co-pilot, I apologize to him later, but yelled at him. I thought, <laughs> I thought he wasn't paying attention. Yeah, I was blaming him. <laughs> I was like, I thought he wasn't paying attention. I'm like, hey, flap's 50. And then he comes back and says, they are at 50. So I look down at the lever. So the flap selector's at 50, but the indicator's at up. And the plane's flying like it's in a no-flap configuration. So now I know uh, we got a flight control malfunction. Um, so then that's, 
that's kind of my black or white decision point. So we go around, deconfigure, I point us back towards Bagram, check off with the JTAC again, being like, hey, we got uh, more of a malfunction and we're gonna have to RTB because uh, we can't land there. No flap landing in the stretch C-130 is a significant emotional event, so that is not an option uh, on the runway up there. Is that based on the, I mean, I meant the speeds obviously are going to be much faster. Going into a FOB, not where you want to be. But it, I mean, is it a significant emotional event, a no flap landing in a C-130? Yeah, it's not so much in the standard C-130. Like the H model is pretty short, but... Uh, the AMC C-130Js or the stretch models are about 15 feet longer uh, and it does create, you gotta, it's very pitch sensitive as far as touching down the runway to avoid striking the tail. Okay. And then like you said, a lot faster speeds, a lot more runway required. So we start, uh, anyway, we start tracking towards Bagram. I'm like kind of relieved at this point. I got my black and white decision. We're RTB in going back. And then now I'm like, well, now I got a potentially pressurization problem because if anybody's operated in the Bogner environment, it's basically in a bowl surrounded by 16,000 plus foot mountains. And now I got a plane with a, at least that window is now compromised and could create a pretty big hole. Um, so we talked about it as a crew, be like, hey, we're going to head directly back tell my loadmaster, hey, keep an eye on that window, and then we'll prep for a rapid decompression if that window were to fail and kind of work our way back. Uh, at this time, Medic was working on Jade in the back of the plane, brought her up to the flight deck and uh, finishing bandaging her up. And then, so the other part is we... Uh, the C-130, when we're deployed, you know, you got your maintainers, you got your aircrew flight equipment personnel, you got your intel folks, you got your SARM troops. So most of them, sometime during the deployment, will hop on a mission, kind of get out away from the base for a little bit, see what they're supporting, that right. kind of thing. So our SARM NCO, I see uh, Master Sergeant Davis, hadn't been out on a sortie yet, for whatever reason, busy, and somebody was like, hey, this is the last mission going out if you want to hop on. So they asked me, and I'm like, yeah, I'm fine with it. It'll be a short hop uh, up to Condus and back. Uh, it'll be something interesting to see. So she was actually just observing, just sitting in the jump seat, which later it was thankful that she was there because she could kind of help out uh, with Sergeant Morin. But at that point, I look back over my shoulder as we're trucking back towards Bagram, She's filling up a puke bag, you know, with all the maneuvering and all the stress. And then uh, Sergeant Morin's getting bandaged up on the bunk uh, behind the jump seat, just bleeding everywhere. And I'm like, well, look at this. I got a puker, a bleeder, <laughs> and a broke-ass plane. Like, <laughs> this is quite the day that I picked. This is but, a great one to finish up on. Yeah. Yeah, hey, yeah perfect. This is, this is one, one way to finish up the deployment. Do you have any uh, indication that, like, I'm assuming hydraulically operated flaps, maybe you'll get yeah. to what, what caused it, but no indications, no cautions, warning lights, anything like that going off? No, not for that. They're hydraulically operated, electronically controlled. So what had ended up happening later when maintenance kind of, you know, took the airplane apart, that third round that hit the plane close 
to the crew entrance door up behind the cockpit. Because we were in a left bank in the C-130, we got a bunch of wires and mechanicals and everything that runs along the top center line section of the aircraft, kind of maximize space in the cargo compartment. Because we were in a left bank, that round had an angle up into the top section of the aircraft and basically cut a wiring harness going into one of our uh, circuit breaker control units that happened to have the flap controller on gotcha. that specific unit. Um, Thank God it wasn't your HUD. Yeah, that would have, man, you get used to the HUD. That, yeah. We love that thing. It's real nice. Uh, but anyway, yeah, so it um, gave us kind of a false hydraulic uh, failure on a different pump, which wasn't a big deal because that has a redundancy, but then you're not going to know anything's wrong with the flaps until you go to actually use them. Um, so it kind of simulated that whole unit failing by cutting that wiring harness. So until we went to use them, there was nothing we could do. Um, so we start trucking back towards Bagram. Pressurization's fine. The window's kind of flexing quite a bit, but it's holding. Uh, Jade's kind of patched up. And then once we finally get kind of over the top of the mountains, get line of sight with Bagram, then that's when I, hey, I can check in with ATC, declare an emergency. Hey, Tom, we're going to go hold because we need to take care of our mechanical problem. Call ops back at the squadron. They had been monitoring the C2 situation or frequency, so they knew what was going on, but I gave them my short version um, and said, hey, we're going to go take care of our stuff, and I'll call you back when we're inbound. Um, so my co-pilot and I run through the checklist. Thankfully, there's a lot of redundancies uh, in using the flaps, so we're able to override the hydraulic valve and uh, manually get the flaps down and then head back in to Bagram with no issue, clear off the runway, clear up with the fire chief, and then I call my buddy who's sitting ADO at the ops desk. I'm like, hey, what's the plan? Um, like you guys have been sitting around at ground speed zero. So yeah, hopefully the next jet should be ready to go. Yep. So he called back and he's like, Hey, we got another plane like pre-flighted, ready to go. Um, after you get into parking. And so we went and parked and then that was kind of the, the cool part is just seeing an entire squadron when something has to get done, like just jump into action literal like beehive of activities so we park shut down ambulance takes jay to the hospital um bunch of loadmasters start transloading all the packs and cargo and vehicles to the other plane two buddies of mine are uh have it basically completely pre-flighted basically ready to crank engines a couple co-pilots you know grab me and my co-pilots like all our flight gear take it over to the other plane. I tell my co-pilot, hey, just you know, get the flight plan loaded up. I'm gonna run in to tactics, get an intel update on anything they need to tell us before we take back off and then we'll get out of here. Um, I know you've mentioned uh, General Malley Maestro uh, before on the podcast. He was actually the wing commander out of Bagram at this time. Yep. So credit um, to him. Yeah, he, uh, yeah, he was a good dude. I got a story about him later, but. Good, um, yeah. I'm trying to get him on the podcast, you know. Just, yeah. We name, he, we name he, drop him all the time, but. We do, we do. Yeah. Uh, 
Yeah, he was uh, fun to fly with. But anyway, to his credit, like obviously he knew what was going on, came down to the flight line, you know, and senior leaders sometimes have a issue with injecting themselves, you know, into a situation. But he was just like, well, looks like you got it covered. Like ran into my squadron commander, was like, hey, take care of your stuff. Let me know if you need anything. And, you know, he went back to what he was doing. So we appreciated that quite a bit. Yeah, it sounds um, like him. Yep. So anyway, nothing really for the Intel updates. So everything gets uh, loaded up. We hop on, crank engines, and then basically um, we had taken on two extra loadmasters. So the kind of our senior enlisted uh, loadmaster who was helping the Army plan everything out, he briefed them up on the plan and what was supposed to happen. So they literally walked on the plane and were like, hey, we're ready to go. Um, another pilot jumped on to see an extra set of eyes scanning uh, in the cockpit, going back up uh, for threats and stuff. So, and then, uh, yeah, Christian, my co-pilot, like we were j cranked engines, we're just getting ready to taxi. And I'm like, oh, hey, I haven't really checked in with you. Like, are you good? Like, <laughs> are you ready to go? He's like, yep, let's do this. Um, so we taxi out, take back off. And then the rest of that was pretty vanilla. I just flew, flew up to Condu's, did the infill as planned, came back to Bagram, sat around for, I think it was three or four hours till they were done with the op, and then flew back up, rinse and repeat, pick everybody up for the exfil, and then bring them back. The cover of darkness helps a little bit. I've, yep, yep. I have a question, pretty. pressurization. Again, not come from that world. But for those who don't know, you did mention Bagram like sits in a bowl. I, my first time taking off out of Bagram in an MC-12 going up to the northeast, I was like, I don't know if we're going like, to clear this mountain. Like, Do we need to do a 360 to make it up over this mountain? Did you guys have to come in above or did you come around it? Like, were you on oxygen? These are just super technical uh, in the weeds type questions, but I'm thinking you're not the cockpit or the plane's no longer pressurized. you got a big hole in it. So... Would you guys have to wear an oxygen mask? I don't know how any of that works. So we were ready to go on oxygen. The plane did end up pressurizing just fine. We did a real yeah. slow, slow climb up to altitude and didn't okay. go too high. I think we only went up to like 18 or something to gotcha. get, over the, get over the mountains so we didn't stress it too much. Um, but like I said, we were ready to go on oxygen if that window started failing. So then the two options were kind of, hey, do we go on oxygen and hop over the mountain? Or do we kind of peel off to the west, go more towards um, kind of halfway between Mozzie? There's a big valley that leads down into Bagram. So if we had to, we could hop over there and kind of work our way down at altitude. But thankfully, plane pressurized just fine, and we were able to hop over the mountain and uh, get back as quickly as possible. Man, that's spicy. I'm glad everything worked out and you guys made it happen. So, and obviously for that, you guys received, uh, the whole crew received the uh, Distinguished Flying Crosses, correct? Uh, no, just myself. The other crew members got single action air medals for the mission. Okay. And then uh, Sergeant Morin got a Purple Heart for nice. injuries, which was, I, I was pretty impressive. That guy handed out like two days later. Wow. So they're pretty, pretty quick on that part. But. Random. I don't know if this is true. I, I saw it pop up in the, in the meme space last week with Oppenheimer that all the Purple Hearts that are still being given out today were produced during World War II, anticipation of uh, going to fight the Japanese, making a landing on the island there. 
So they, they produce so many purple hearts that they still have an, an inventory, which I don't know how those yeah. things are still like having deteriorated, but it's probably not true. I'm just spreading misinformation. Random sidebar. Here's the second sidebar. Yeah. Maestro O'Malley. I flew him in the backseat of the F-16 during the demo, and he was a champion because he wore a Jahimix. So normally I wouldn't fly with the Jahimix, the helmet mounted uh, chewing system that has system. like the big extra bubble bug eye thing on there. But it's about a pound and a half of computer that's like basically wearing a baseball hat. Well, I wouldn't do that because of the just the high G intensive parts of the sortie. Just more strain on your neck. But yeah. not a lot of guys at that point had just the 55P, the non-Jahimix helmet. They'd gotten rid of it. And you're just using that for MVGs as well as Jahimix. But he's back there, and I'm probably, we're, we're running straight uphill. It's probably somewhere in the nature of 7 to 8 to 9 Gs, and his neck just snaps forward. <laughs> he's got that. I'm he was Denif for like two weeks, he said. Afterwards. He went to the flight dock right after that, and then yeah, duty's not including flying. He couldn't, he couldn't fly for two weeks. So Yeah, it's like, where's the squadron chiropractor? Yeah, yeah now they got him, but uh, great, great leader. I hope he keeps going places in the Air Force. He's the one you want to stay around, so. Yeah, he was, uh, so because he was the wing commander, for like the listeners, when you're in charge of a wing, regulation-wise, you're allowed to fly with, uh, in any aircraft, like basically under your command. It's a bunch of restrictions and stuff, so there's nothing unsafe about it, but obviously he was like, hey, I, I have no idea what a C-130 does, and now I'm in charge of a, you know, have a whole squadron underneath me. Um, so he wanted to go out and uh, get some Herc experience. So my squadron commander jumped on because so, he was uh, the certified IP at the time because that goes along with all the restrictions on uh, one of the missions that I was in charge of. So I'm in the jump seat watching uh, them and his first C-130 sortie is hopping from Bagram to Jalalabad, which is pretty impressive. That's not an easy field to go into, but did, he did really well. I'm like, yeah, well, this, this guy knows how to fly. Yeah, I think in the probably a four-year time span he went from the f-35 from the f-16 to the f-35 back to the f-16 to the a-10 back to the f-16 yeah he's bou- bouncing all over the place yeah thankfully everything's the same trees get bigger trees get smaller yeah. so <laughs> it's, it's nature well hey i want to jump back what got you involved in flying in the first place what made you want to go into the air force I was just always interested in uh, aviation as a kid. You know, a lot of people have that, you know, air show experience type of thing. I definitely had plenty of those. Uh, my grandfather was a B-17 mechanic in World War II and then went on to have a pretty long career in the FAA as a maintenance inspector. So he was always talking about airplanes, around airplanes. You know, we were hanging out with him this summer. He was dragging us to the airport and that kind of stuff. So um, definitely wanted to to fly and keep that kind of in the future. And then, you know, end of high school starts rolling around and you gotta kind of think like, what do I actually wanna do with my life right now? So I was like, hey, let's uh, let's go be a pilot. So, and let's go join the Air Force and kind of just put everything together at once. Um, so SDSU had a flying program. So went and got my private and my instrument as part of that while I was doing ROTC and then changed my majors to save some money once uh, it was looking like I was going to get a pilot slot. <laughs> let the Air Force pay for that? Yeah, let the Air Force pay for the rest of that. And then, you know, just the standard thing after that. So IFS, pilot training, the whole, whole nine yards. I know you don't, you just have your path, right? But doing the MC-12 bit. So 
I've talked about elsewhere on the podcast, but MC-12, that was a stopgap that the Air Force provided really for the Army, the Marines, for ground forces, intelligence, surveillance, reconnaissance. It's about the time, like, drones were popping up, and it became an insatiable need for more ISR overhead Afghanistan and Iraq. Air Force, hey, here's your stopgap. Pull a King Air off the shelf, pull a bunch of equipment off the shelf, slap it in a plane, and then they just started pulling people from different career fields. As you mentioned, there's such a need. I mean, it was a mix from every major weapon system, from the F-22, C-17, FAPES, et cetera. But also, hey, you're going to graduate pilot training, you're going to do the MC-12 for six months, and then you're going to go to C-130, C-5, whatever it might be. Do you think that experience helps you later on down the road? This episode is brought to you by Undeniably Dairy. Dairy farmers are more than farmers. They're climate caretakers. They see water as a precious resource. Most farmers recycle water up to four times, from chilling the milk to irrigating the crops. And some even use technology to turn manure into renewable energy. To learn more about what dairy farmers are doing to make their farms more sustainable, visit usdairy.com. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. Some things are just better together. Like party playlists and Friday nights, campfires and ghost stories, peanut butter and chocolate. And Reese's Cups are the perfect combination of creamy peanut butter and delicious milk chocolate. So, when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. Buy Reese's today wherever candy is sold. Oh, absolutely. I mean, from my perspective, like it was an awesome experience. Like, uh, you know, your first lieutenant fresh out of pilot training is basically six months to the day that I graduated pilot training almost that I'm downrange flying combat missions, you know, contributing to the effort where my peers in my class, you know, are maybe halfway through their FTU at that point, you know, and not anywhere towards kind of being mission quality or anything like that. So as far as getting into the action or something like that, um, it was definitely a good experience. And then just the interesting part of it is because they needed so many people, like you said, they were pulling bodies from every corner of the Air Force. Um, the squadron up at Bagram, I think, if I think back through everybody I flew with, there was probably somebody from every single airframe uh, in that squadron. So the amount of exposure, the different people they meet, I mean, you got everybody from, like I said, brand new lieutenant out of pilot training all the way up to, you know, some crusty lieutenant colonel that wanted to get some extra flight time, you know, and left his reserve gig or whatever he was doing, you know, to go hop on an MC-12 deployment and then everybody in between. So just the the type of people that you got exposed to um, and then kind of seeing all the different missions that you're supporting was definitely pretty cool. Yeah, that for me... And I've talked about it. I wanted to fly the A-10 prior to going to the MC-12 gig. I didn't have a lot of good exposure to a lot of F-16 guys going through pilot training and didn't fully understand what the F-16 did, nor the community. And fortunately for me, I was exposed to a lot of Viper guys, which made me change my, my, my dream sheet, put that number one, and I was lucky enough to get it. And then I think later on down the road to on F-16 deployment, understanding like what those ISR platforms are capable of or what they can bring to the fight and amplify it because i've had guys 
uh, chime in like, well, what do pilots think about drone pilots, et cetera. I was like, I, I was so much more lethal in F-16 when there was a drone or an unmanned aerial vehicle on station <laughs> just because they're sitting there, as you joked, you know, sitting at zero knots on the ground and they're sitting in a booth, right, with lots of eyeballs and high-definition cameras that can really amplify the amount of data and what your understanding of the environment is. So it's huge. That definitely played a big role for me, for sure. Yeah, and no, I grew up outside of Ellsworth, so one of the B-1 bases. So we had B-1s flying over town like my entire childhood. So that's what I thought I wanted to fly because that was the, you know, the home state, the, the at-home aircraft yeah. type of thing. But Oof. pilot training has a has a nifty way of maneuvering people into the right airframe that they're supposed to be in. So glad I ended up in the Herc. Have you been, been, have you been, been inside awesome. a B1? Yep. That, uh, I'm curious to hear your thoughts. Cause the first time I went, I did the Dias air show, Buddy showed me around. This was the time when they had the, it's like an overwing fire and the crew was going to eject. And the way they oh, did it yeah. was, you know, like have the back seaters go first and then the front seaters. And there's a student back seater and he pulled his handle and didn't, it didn't go. Yeah. So now what do real, you do? And they elected to land. Right but I was like, man, that's, that's a tough spot. But that was the first time I, I climbed up in that thing. And whoever designed that, I'm assuming it was the Soviets based on the ergonomics. <laughs> it was like, there's a little tiny window down by like your, your knee. And knowing those guys are in the stack doing a wheel, I would be so disoriented slash probably just throwing up violently in the back, just leaning, trying to like manipulate whatever you're doing back there, then also like, oh, you got this tiny little window by your right knee or left knee. Not not where I want to be in life. Yeah, no, I mean, you definitely, it's, that back definitely seems like quite the cave uh, yeah, to be I, in. I also over g the sim every single time I turn that thing. It's like, yeah, I was only in the sim once. I'm sure I might have over g it. I don't know, but I was like, this is kind of different. Uh, that, that tail actually diverted into Midland, so wow, I was a T1IP. That was one of the trans yeah, okay. transition bases. We were there, you know, every other day it seemed like. So we were doing patterns over that B1 for two months, <laughs> and I'm just like, yep, still there, not going anywhere. Yeah, that that would have been a little sporty. I mean, I guess good thing his seat he was going first and didn't work. Otherwise, he's been sitting there by himself for for a little yeah, bit of time that that would have been awkward definitely. yeah so t1 ip after one round in the c130 then now also in the schoolhouse can you talk to me a little bit about uh, what your experience was like as a t1 instructor pilot and then i know you're just starting in the in the in the herc schoolhouse but you've been an instructor like kind of philosophy with students what you're seeing nowadays what your thoughts are big picture etc yeah i mean Del Rio is like a hard place to live. It's a little bit on an island, but like everybody says when they finish that assignment, just the job was awesome. I mean, you know that from your time as a FAPE, like teaching students, seeing that light bulb come on, seeing them go from, you know, walking down the street to be able to fly an airplane is definitely uh, rewarding to say the least. Um, and then it was just awesome, awesome assignment. Uh, CT cross country was like the, you know, the reward for, for doing that. So you and your buddies like in a two ship, like, Hey, here's your private business jet for the weekend. Just be back on Sunday afternoon. CT cross oh. country. What's that? That, that, that didn't yeah. exist in my day. So always, no. take, always take a student. What now, advice, so like what advice would you give? You what advice would you give to students 
going through. Is there any tips or tricks, something that you saw that worked well or things to avoid? I mean, just, you know, stay focused as much as you can, kind of take care of every part of your life. Like don't, uh, don't let something fall off. Uh, try your best to keep all the penguins on the iceberg, that kind of thing. Um, but really it's like, just, you know, have that commitment that this is what you want to do and then see it through to the end because you're definitely going to have emotions pop up in the middle of training. Like, is this for me? And it's like, no, you wanted to do this. So this is temporary. Just get to the end of it. Yeah. No, that's good advice. I'll, before we wrap up here, cause I'm going to, again, ask you my standard question. If you found 15 or 16 year old walking down the street, what advice you would give him? But I'll let you think about that. I feel like I have a pretty decent uh, idea of what's going on, at least the fighter side, based on what my buddies have told me. I'm not there anymore, right? But what is the tempo slowed down at all for, like, the C-130 world with being out of Afghanistan? Is the force able to kind of find some equilibrium when it comes to training and building experience inside the crew force, or what's the general vibe today? I mean, we're still pretty busy. So that tasking that was just uh, Afghanistan has kind of moved to uh, Kuwait to kind of be CENTCOM Airlines, more or less, since it's, <laughs> it's fairly quiet right now, but there's still, uh, you know, airlift's a constant need because you constantly got people on cargo that need to get from A to B. Um, but really, you know, the focus is on what's next. So... Agile combat employments, you know, the buzzword that every community's kind of coming up it. with. Yep, yep, love it. Um, so for us, that's basically, hey, how do we take a small formation, small footprint? How do we, we be useful to the CAF uh, in different ways? Kind of working through those problem sets. Obviously, you got threats in Eastern Europe, threats in the Pacific. So working through, like, what those problem sets look like, how we're going to contribute um, you got new systems coming online, uh, like Rapid Dragon that just made its like public debut. Uh, basically, so all these new things coming that's it's keeping the community pretty busy. Yeah, interesting. All right, pivoting to 15, 16 year old you, and I think you're gonna hang around for a there I was story when when that's yeah. all said and done. But is there any advice you would give him? Change anything? I wouldn't change anything. It's been a heck of a ride so far, so we'll keep going. But um, advice I'd give 15, 16-year-old would be, uh, you know, stay busy. Always be learning something new um, because I'm not that old, but as you get older, like, time just keeps moving faster and faster. So don't wait for tomorrow to do something that you want to get after. Like, get after it now because it's only going to keep moving faster. Dude, it's cliche, I would say, but that is so true. I mean, I say that all the time now, and you really feel it as you get older. It's just, and you're not guaranteed tomorrow. So, Chris, thanks for joining me on the podcast, man. It was very interesting to hear about the 19th of September. And, I, again, when this releases, it's probably going to be on the three-ish year anniversary, plus or minus a couple of days. Uh, but that's definitely quite a sporty environment. And so just to hear and where you were in that time and what went down was uh, very interesting. So thanks for sharing that with me. And thanks for joining me on the podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me. It was awesome. Cheers, brother. See ya.